Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 57, John 1, In a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lizen Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizenArborGold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you might know me as Gloss Table Girl from Reddit or on the Maester Monthly Podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. John 1, we have hit a storm of swords. We haven't been here since Sansa. So now we are back. Out of black, almost. Uh, and black and red? Or his faded grays? Yeah, soon, very soon. We'll be in those and we will get to that. But first, we did get a great email from our friend Eve. Eve wrote, Eliana, have you read The Priory of the Orange Tree? Because there's this line, Melawago-eyed Valor. You can't take that horse. The horse, said Aid, goes where I go. I think you both would enjoy it, but I thought Eliana would especially enjoy there being a horse named Valor, who is a very good boy. Yes. I have not read The Priory of the Orange Tree, but I do appreciate that Aid stands up for his horse. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry, the horse is, comes with me, whatever. Yeah. Is Aid is Aid a skin changer? Oh my god, is he? No one knows. No one knows. I don't know. I don't know. But thank you very much, Eve, for sending this email. Yeah, and I think we're just going to jump into it this week. We have a lot to get through, a lot to cover. We're only covering John 1, but we are also going to talk about just the introduction to John's arc in A Storm of Swords, what we're going to see, some of the thematics. And I mean, the very first thing we're seeing is that the Starks all are getting lost on their journey. Uh, we, we see it with all of them in this book. We see it in prior books from Ned to Catelyn, even to Sansa, to Bran, to Arya, to John, to Lyanna, to Rickon, to Brandon. I don't know, all of them, pretty much all of them. Uh, John is the newest to join that. He is lost on his journey. He's alone in the Great North. He is. And part of John's journey and what leads him astray or tempts him to go astray is, of course, Egret. Yes. Egret teaches him many lessons, which are, I think, a very important part of his journey in learning about truth and growing up. Yeah, she teaches him a lot about what and, freedom means to her. And John kind of learns mm -hmm. from that and decides what freedom means to him. And it really is very coming of age. Uh, a lot about that entering of manhood. John is deciding what kind of man he wants to be. And along the way, he's trying to emulate Ned while he swears all these vows and promises others all these things. But of course, that's what Ned was actually doing his whole life, coincidentally. Uh, very underground. No, John didn't know that. But I mean, Ned was only 18 when Lyanna died. And he started going into war when he was 17, 16. I mean, He's older than John was, but that's still very heavy, especially after Lyanna dies. Yeah, and John and Ned are perhaps of age when they both lose their father figures, right? And I mean, yeah, Ned is John's father, effectively. So there's that. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other ways in which John emulates Ned, right? Like you were talking about how this is what Ned was trying to do his whole life, and John's hiding a secret in his heart throughout a majority of A Storm of Swords uh, about where his true loyalties are, and he's betraying the Free Folk. 
in his heart, while at the same time also betraying the Night's Watch. It's really hard to feel two things at once. That's what being a teenager is about. <laughs> That's what uh, the Twitter Why Young Adult novel taught oh, me. And Ned also lived his life hiding his own secrets about his sister and his son-nephew and being, on one hand, treasonous to John's claim, right? But at the same time, in saving John, treasonous to his best friend. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of parallels that we can grab from the other Starks who are at similar points in their story, right? Hiding and pretending to be other people. Of course. Yeah, you have, like, Arya, who's pretending to be, I don't know, like, a bazillion different people. Bran and Rickon pretending to be dead. Sansa pretending to be loyal to Joffrey still. And then, of course, Rob. I think you see the parallels between Rob and John, or not really parallels, like... But the similarities in their story and how different parts of their upbringing manifest in these two different people, right? They've had the same teachers, but because of their stations, things were a little different. In Storm, both John and Rob sleep with women that they shouldn't. And, I mean, it's unconfirmed if Rob loves Jane or not in the books. But, I mean, it's definitely out of honor. Maybe that's a kind of love, too, in its own way, even if it's not necessarily romantic. And both make different choices about their versions of honor, neither of which is necessarily wrong, and both of which end up having these devastating consequences. Like, for example, Rob's honor compels him to wed Jane, and as a result of the unfair play of other people, Rob ends up dying. Because remember, Jane survives him in the books. John differs because he ends up being the betrayer, right? After eating of the meat and mead mm. of Mance Raider and of the Free Folk. But it isn't just honor so much as it's a heavy burden of guilt that Rob and John were left with from their dad. Catelyn can't have been much better at helping Rob process any of this. Rob, like John, can't father a bastard. That's the one thing that they cannot do. It might not have been a verbal telling, but the shame was so deeply embedded from all the different times they had been iced out and seen Catelyn and Ned fighting, the harsh way Ned treated her when she was begging for answers, uh, the arguments and fights, and it was a stigma in the household. And John, being a bastard, has kind of the biggest burden of it all. He finds himself in a different position than Rob. All of the blame has always been piled on him. It's always been his fault, and it complicates things with the Free Folk and with Egret, and in honoring Corrin's request... And the vows that John swore. I think there's something really poignant in that Rob, part of Rob's choice of feeling like he can't father a bastard is because he saw not only how it affected Kat and Ned's relationship, but how much it hurt the brother that he loves so much, John. And he doesn't want to inflict that upon someone else. So in a way, Rob marries Jane, yeah, I, I guess for love, but for love of John, not Jane. Not like Ooh. that. As much as we talk about incest. Much well, like Catelyn and Brandon were supposed to wed and Ned marries Catelyn out of love and for his parents, for Rickard and for Brandon. Something like that. like And, and maintaining that yeah. honor and the vows that were sworn. And I mean, in, in a way, John's honor also compels him in his choices, but in a different direction. It's what compels him to actually, as opposed to wed Egret, it's what compels him to leave Egret, and because of the unfair systems, unlike where Rob dies for his choices, in this one it's Egret who pays and dies. Yeah, that betrayal of John's honor is kind of what indirectly causes Egret to die, and at the same time, it's not just Egret dying indirectly. As a result of that, 
It's also that Egret dies because she chooses freedom, and this is what her freedom actually tastes like in the end. John's A Storm of Swords story comes back around to the end of John's A Game of Thrones story, where, again, he has the choice of leaving the Night's Watch, but this time he deserts freedom, if that's somehow possible, and then chooses the watch twice over. He's offered Winterfell, finally, here, and then he's like, nah, I'm gonna stay here. But in a way, the choice is kind of made for him. That's kind of John's whole thing, right? We have that reluctant ruler uh, look, and we also have the look at what happened when he played the politician and what that actually causes in the end whenever he plays politician. And it's curious to me because it's a lot like what we see with Ned. Ned playing politics doesn't come out well for him, uh, and he knows it doesn't. And you look at what Cregan start going south. He goes south, he does his duty, he gets the job done, and he leaves. Uh, and I think that we're seeing a lot of that thing going on where they just don't, they're not, it's not their thing. They're not there to play, you know, the, the fancy scheming lord. They're there to get crap done and be done with it. <laughs> yeah, even if, I guess, what everyone decides should be done yeah. is them. <laughs> uh, a refresh on John Seven and A Clash of Kings, which we just read a little bit ago. Uh, talking a little bit about changeling children, there's a passage that we talk about. There's a passage from John 7. They were friends as well as brothers, John realized, and now they are sworn foes. Boy, did he desert. For a wench, some say. For a crown, others would have it. Corrin tested the edge of his sword with the ball of his thumb. He liked women, Mance did, and he was not a man whose knees bent easily, that's true. But it was more than that. He loved the wild better than the wall. It was in his blood. He was wildling born, taken as a child. When some raiders were put to the sword, when he left the Shadow Tower, he was only going home again. I thought there was something interesting in this, that uh, he grew up in the Shadow Tower, and he was very much so, as a king now, he was almost like a prince in a tower. Much like John yeah. in the Tower of Joy. You know, and he came huh. from forbidden love, and his story is very musical. He's always playing music, surrounded by music and harps. Uh, very Bale the Bard, as we talked about as well in the last episode. And I'm sure we will continue to talk about it today. But a changeling child, a taken child, they both share that similarity. And I think it helps add to why Mance accepts him later on with a little bit of light manipulation from John. They're both kind of like Rapunzel. It's weird. Yet... Those parallels between their towers and being princes and kings, I think that's really interesting because both Mance and John end up showing kings could be hiding under the snow, Ned. Snow, Ned! <laughs> snow! <laughs> Me. Speaking of storms. And swords. Yeah. And uh, storm lords. Here's a lightning round. Prologue. Chet and his sworn brothers plan a mutiny. But the blast of three horns dashes those plans. My god, what a good prologue. Fuck. Jamie won. Brienne of Tarth and Cleos Frey are charged with seeing Jamie to the capital. They run into Robin Riger on the way. Catelyn won. Confined to her father's chambers after releasing the Kingslayer, she must watch her father suffer before his death. Later, she argues with Edmure on his return about freeing Jamie. Arya won. Although they stole a map, Arya's escape team seems to have lost their way along the Red Fork. She dreams through the eyes of Nymeria, who falls on the bloody mummers in the woods. Tyrion won. 
Tyrion wakes to a Tywin Lannister-run King's Landing. He visits his father, who's waging war with quills, and argues for his birthright, Casterly Rock. Davos won. Blackwater Bay takes four of his sons in its aftermath. But the seven have use for him yet, as Solidor Sans ships retrieve him from the shores. Sansa won. Sansa is invited to a garden party hosted by the Tyrells, who have other motivations for inviting the girl who was once betrothed to the current crowned stag. Stags. And so that brings us to John 1, A Storm of Swords. After turning his cloak, John is brought before Mance Raider to plead his case in joining the Free Folk. The King Beyond the Wall reveals he's seen Winterfell's bastard twice before, and then he tells us why he abandoned his vows. John opens and closes his hand, looking across the milk water. The wildlings and John begin to quietly descend. The eagle soars ahead, rattleshirt rattles, the clopping of hooves are heard, very rhythmic, no real song, but rhythm. Six days ago, the hounds in the group tried to fight Ghost, but Ghost held his own and he scared them off. I thought this was kind of a fun nod. We get this a couple of times throughout this chapter, because if you'll remember, there are some of those backstory notes from uh, Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair about the sort of foreshadowing that George had actually originally wanted to write into the Game of Thrones episode about the Purple Wedding of how eventually we were going to have a fight between some wolves and some dogs. It reminds me of uh, Arya chapters in Storm, you know, that uh, the cold rain lashed them both and washed away her shouts. And all that Arya could think of was the question he had asked her. Do you know what dogs do to wolves? Die? Yeah, against mostly. them? <laughs> Pretty much. That, that seems know, to be what George thinks. The wolves will come again, is what I hear. So Yeah, that's what I hear, <laughs> too. Jon Snow's Garen wickered softly, but a touch and a soft word soon quieted the animal. Would that his own fears would be calmed so easily. He was all in black, the black of the Night's Watch, but the enemy rode before and behind wildlings and i am with them i just i feel like i would feel so out of place if i were john in this outfit that is all black against the wilderness that is very white with snow i mean he very much stands out but i mean like that's a, that was his fashion statement as a teenager you know yeah yeah he uh we start to meet the free folk crew they have divided the spoils from corin halfhand's corpse raided his corpse, Egret got his cloak, Ragwile his gloves, a bowman got his boots, and Longspear Reich initially got his helm, but it didn't fit, so Egret actually got it back. Rattleshirt took his bones, and the bloody head of Eben was also in his bag. John has this line I really love, uh, dead, all dead but me, and I am dead to the world. So this reminds me of that one so spake Martin that George got asked if Sandor and Sansa would meet again, and he said, why, the Hound is dead, and Sansa may be dead as well. There's only Elaine Stone. And this reminds me of what's kind of going on with all these characters, right? Like, Arya's dead. There's a fake Arya in Winterfell. Uh, Bran and Rickon are thought to be dead, except obviously to Sam, who meets them briefly. But Bran and Rickon burned. At the end of Dance, many think Danny might even be dead. And Aegon the Sixth 
I guess, soon of his name, uh, I've heard rumors of. He's probably still dead, but there's a boy claiming to be him. Kind of fits in with that War of the Roses stuff we talked about. And John is dead to the world for a minute, or maybe, you know, a little bit. He's just dead. Dead. And we don't know. Maybe he's dead forever. Uh, George actually said in interviews, too, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. John, he's dead. I see you, George. I mean, death should change a person, right? Directed by Rattleshirt, Egret and Longspear Reich are guarding John, and he watches the dynamic between them. He's very astounded because they all talk back to Rattleshirt and they're not afraid of him, even though Rattleshirt is their boss. But no one's getting fired. <laughs> Rattleshirt doesn't buy John's desertion, though. The wildling leader fixed him with an unfriendly stare. Might be a fool these others, Crow, but don't think you'll be fooling Mance. He'll take one look at you and know you're false, and when he does, I'll make a cloak of your wolf there, and open your soft boy's belly and sew a weasel up inside. John's sword hand opened and closed, flexing the burned fingers beneath the glove, but Longspear Reich only laughed. And where would you <laughs> find a weasel in the snow? <laughs> So that uh, reminds I me of a couple that. things. It reminds me of Tickler, the whole like open your soft boy's belly and sew a weasel Ew. up inside. That reminds me of the Tickler in the Herod Hall stuff. Uh, and I think that's somewhat relevant, right, to the time span of where we're reading this chapter. So it's true. I could see George kind of like referencing himself there. But it also reminds me of Arya, right? Arya has Weasel, like the child that's hanging around with her that she starts talking to. And there's that whole line from A Game of Thrones. You had best run back to your room, little sister. Septimordane will surely be lurking. The longer you hide, the sterner the penance. You'll be sewing all through the winter. When the spring thaw comes, they will find your body with a needle still locked tight between frozen fingers. It reminds me a lot of just Arya with Weasel in the Snow. Yes, I do see that. I've alternate take on this line. I know that some people think it means Arya dies. I kind of see it as like if Needle is Jon Snow's smile in the Stark family. It's her remembering her Stark identity, same as John does, it seems, probably. And Arya obviously has to be a big reminder to him of what that is. Of course. I just want to say, I hope Weasel's alive. I worry about that girl. They camp out their first night, making a fire to warm them, and Egret sidles up next to John and tells him, Mance'll take ya since you killed Corin." And when I'm free, he said slowly, Will I be free to go? Sure you will. She had a warm smile despite her crooked teeth. And we'll be free to kill you. <laughs> it's dangerous being free. But most come to like the taste of it. She put her gloved hand on his leg just above the knee. You'll see. Wow. Damn, she coming on strong. <laughs> strong. He's like... I, she's very... That's very strong. I will, thought John. I will see and hear and learn. And when I have, I will carry the word back to the wall. The wildlings had taken him for an oathbreaker, but in his heart, he was still a man of the Night's Watch, doing the last duty that Corrin Halfhand had laid on him. Before I killed him. John doesn't realize Egret's coming on to him? Of course he doesn't! He knows nothing! That's like the whole start of it, remember? This is it. That's true. It's interesting that Egret basically tells him, Freedom has a price, Jon Snow. It reminds me of, I'm making Emmett watch Silicon Valley with me right now because he's never seen it. And there's an episode where a girl basically straight up 
and a guy are arguing about this tech company and he's like you sold me on this big idea like you're the one that told me i should do it it'd be great and she's like well of course i lied to you a little bit but you're still like you still got this thing this amazing beautiful big thing and that's what egert's basically telling him like yeah well you know I might have, you know, lied to you a little bit, but you're still going to be free. You're more free than you'd be anywhere else, Jon Snow. But I think part of what she's saying is that this freedom comes with a responsibility, right? It, it's very existential. Like, you get to define what your life is, but now you have to be responsible and for it. Absolutely. And to be fair, she does learn that, like, freedom comes with a price for herself later on, obviously, when she meets her end. It's not free. Like, free is not- there's no free in freedom. I mean, she was free to try and, I guess, break through the walls, but she wasn't truly free. She was trapped on one side of the wall, and then at the same time, I guess that means the rest of the Night's Watch, right? We're free to try and kill her. I'm sad. sad. I don't even want to deal with her This isn't the first time I'm going to be sad this episode. Yeah, I'm- I'm- Never mind. Let's just talk about Rattleshirt. Fuck this guy. He leads them across the stream, and they come upon eight of Mance's outriders, including the Weeper, who has a dumb name, but he's terrifying. (laughs) He really is. He, like, cuts their eyes out or something like that. He's a fleshy blonde man with watery eyes who bore a great curved scythe of sharpened steel. And they tell the Weeper that John is a crow that came over after killing Corrin. And Rattleshirt also reminds them that, hey... Uh, he also killed Oral, so watch out. <laughs> so the Weeper says to him that, oh, Mance may keep you. You have a wolfish cast to you. I thought that was very interesting, especially because so mm-hmm. many people have recognized that he has this dark look. The dogs all try to fight Ghost again. The Ghost is all like, woof, woof. And Longspear's like, wow, they don't really <laughs> like ghosts. And he's like, they're dogs and he's a wolf, said John. They know he's not that kind. No more than I am yours, he thought. Uh, Major major A, emo hours. B, real abandonment hours. And C, loan by the mammals dot mp3 hours. Several hours. The hours hours of the wolf. You said you wanted George to tell you the hours. I could tell you the hours. (laughs) Just saying. Uh, Again... John finds himself feeling like he doesn't belong because I, a that's how John feels all the time, and b that is also what adolescence is like. True, he didn't belong with the Starks. He felt, and he probably isn't gonna feel like he belongs being a Targaryen. Yeah, <sighs> where does he belong? <laughs> We're kind of reminded here of John's mission from Corin. Find out what the wildlings are doing and what they're looking for. It's a kazoo, and then they enter the free folk camp, and a spearwife is now carving arrows. And John thinks, Arrows for my brothers, John thought. Arrows for my father's folk, for the people of Winterfell and Deepwood Mott and the Last Hearth. Arrows for the North. Lots of good groundwork being laid here, because when John thinks of his family and his people and his brothers being threatened... What does he do? Well, is this a rhetorical question? Yes. Okay. But. What does he do? You're thinking, right, of what I'm thinking. I think, but I'm not sure. I'm referencing the bad show. He would do what was right, no matter what. Oh. Aw. Bummer. Fuck. Rattleshirt declares that they're taking him to meet Mance, and then they're gonna gut him after. 
real charming, this rattleshirt guy. Uh, but not everything is warlike in the wildling camp. There's also women dancing and sheep bleeding and babies crying and tents and tents of people. Like, everything that you would expect to see in a whole society, right? And he walks along the camp, marveling at the number of free folk, but noting that they actually have no defenses besides patrol. If his brothers were to catch them in such disarray, many of them would pay for that freedom with their life's blood. They had numbers, but the Night's Watch had discipline, and in battle, discipline beats numbers nine times out of every ten his father had once told him. Ugh. Isn't it really sad that Ned told him that, and you think about the experience Ned has in war? Yes. Actually, when you put it like that, now it's just fucking sad. Again. Just wanted to make sure you were sad, too. But <laughs> You just wanted to make sure I was still sad? <laughs> yeah. So, John kind of realizes, though, in this little moment, you know, he's looking around the camp, seeing the kids and the animals, and these are just people. Like, in this moment, he knows these are people on the run. Right, and this is what ends up making him leaving so hard in the end. It's so hard for him to betray them. Yes, I think he kind of does it ultimately, right? Yeah. With the hope of helping them in the end, because he's like, we gotta keep this wall up. Because there's this whole other army where discipline is not going to beat numbers. This is the one out of ten where it's not gonna work against the army of the dead. Where they're just sheer sheer strength yeah and and they don't feel pain that's it not so easy mance's tent is thrice the size of any of the other tents it's sewn together with some polar bear hides and it's crowned with giant antlers and at first i was like you're not gonna like those antlers later buddy but then i was like oh they're elk antlers not stag antlers (laughs) how different are they i mean an elk is just a sillier looking giant stag if you think about it I digress. They (laughs) command John to leave Ghost outside, so John obeys and he enters the tent. The tent is dark, smoky, and red, and there's a dark man and a pretty blonde who both share a horn of mead. There's also a pregnant woman cooking hens over a brassiere, not sharing a horn of mead. She's being responsible. And a gray-haired man in a black and red ragged cloak plays a lute over there, singing The Dornishman's Wife, which John finds incredibly weird. He finds this very poetic for some reason, because he's like, oh, they're singing The Dornishman's Wife, and we are in the great freezing cold yeah, there's, of the north. There's definitely a ton of symbolism in this song. Eliana and I discussed this a little bit outside of this episode, and we kind of went for a while digging deep, and there's definitely symbolism. I'm going to let her take that wheel in just a minute, but I found this take on Reddit really interesting, between two users, which one was Glycerizin and Perfect M. <laughs> Glycerizin said, The song is commonly known. John recognized it when he met Mance. Later we learn of Darren playing it. It's phrased, it makes it clear it's not actually a Dornish song. It's more of a northern thing since it makes more sense when being about some faraway exotic place. The details don't need to apply it to Dorn at all. And Perfect M actually took it a little farther and says that there's no need to call them Dornish if you lived and sang the song in Dorn. It's basically expressing a foreigner's wife. 
Uh, in the show, it was actually used to make fun of the Dornish at King's Landing, kind of incite Oberyn's anger during the Great Purple Wedding Adventures. But in the books, it's really only heard in Jon's chapters, a reference to it in Mel's, and indirectly in Arya's chapter with Darren. This doesn't seem like it's a very complimentary to the Dornish and is definitely not a Dornish song. But as you said... It's kind of rude, but I guess, like, they die at the end, right? Yeah. But Chloe and I talked extensively. I was like, there's something in the song, and I don't know what it is. And I looked through a bunch of different interpretations people had of the song and theories around it and the lyrics. And so there was just, like, a lot of interesting lines in this. And some people think that it's about Roose Bolton because there's a line where where the Dornishman's blade had a song of its own and a bite sharp and cold as a leech. And then, of course, Roose Bolton is associated with leeches. You see other people associating it with a man's raider uh, sleeping with someone and having to do with Lord Commander Corgyle. But I think that the meaning of the song and the symbolism actually might be a little more poetic than that. At the same time, perhaps less uh, significant in terms of plot events. There, there's one plot event that it might have to do with, right? And so we think that the Dornishman's wife actually symbolizes summer, the season. The Dornishman's wife was as fair as the sun. Her kisses were warmer than spring. And then, of course, she would sing as she bathed. And then she has a voice that was sweet as a peach. And from A Clash of Kings, which comes a little before this, we get this sort of establishment and, and symbolism idea in a literary sense of peaches being associated with that idea of youth, of naivete, of those sweet summer children. And so I think the Dornishman's wife is very much summer. And then at the end of the song, we have, I don't know, the guy sleeping with the Dornishman's wife, who's not the Dornishman, dying and th singing about how his days are done, but what does it matter if Ramen must die? And they've tasted the Dornishman's wife. They've tasted summer and joy and happiness, so it's fine. And the Dornishman's blade, though, again, made of black steel, kiss was a terrible thing, and the song of its own is a sharp bite, and it's cold as a leech. Whoever slept with the Dorn Dornishman's wife is laying on the ground in the darkness around. It seems like maybe the Dornishman's blade, and the Dornishman, even though he's supposed to be from a warm area, is, is winter. He might not be winter, but like, you get the idea. It, it might not actually be that he's winter, but I think the Dornishman's wife is summer. That's it. There's something in it referencing the White Walkers, and it's only in John's arc, right? Like, here's the, the weird thing. It's only a song that's seen in John's story, and Arya gets a little tiny indirect taste of it. She hears Darren singing it. And I'm sure it's referenced a few times in song, like lightly, you know, nothing nothing direct, but a song about a Dornishman or a song about the Dornish or, you know, stuff like that. It's not quite in anyone else's arc. So it's definitely something to do with winter. There's, there's a winter-summer connection. I think that's smart. And I think the blade is the biggest giveaway on that. Yeah, and it, it might not even be that deep. Like, people have songs that personify and are about seasons all the time in real life, right? Yeah, like the seasons of love, like we talked about last week. Here's another song discussing the seasons of love. That's true. It is also another way that it's a season. It, they're all songs about ice and fire in different ways. And aren't all songs about love in the end? Um, Anyways, so Rattleshirt removes his helm, <laughs> and it turns out he's like a normal, ugly dude with a weird mustache and a pinched face. 
Yeah, Rattleshirt's kind of fucking annoying, and I think he plays a similar role for John's story throughout his journeys with the Free Folk um, that Alistair Thorne did. Yeah. He's kind of a Snape-like character, right? Uh, but without the sad backstory that makes us actually like Snape, because we are Snape apologists on this <laughs> podcast, and only because he's part of the Free Folk can actually actively say that he wants to kill John, unlike Alistair, and... You know, in that role, he actively antagonizes John, just like Alistair, playing foil to that top dog who is Manser Jair, who ends up becoming a mentor figure to John. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, hey, his sacrifice for Mance is the sad backstory, right? That's it. That's his his redeeming quality, because John says in John 11 in Store of Swords, Rattleshirt, we called him, treacherous and bloodthirsty. If there's honor in him, he hides it beneath his suit of bones. Not really a backstory, though. It's a forward story, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's his end story. It's his end game for Rattleshirt. And I don't know if I would call it, like, a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice! It's a but it's not a one that Rattleshirt chose, and therefore it's not, like, I think of it as a redeeming quality on his part. Because he's just screaming, like, y'all are making a mistake. And everyone's like, wow, I really thought that Man's Reader was going to go down better. It's a great sacrifice. Someone had to do it. Yeah, but he didn't choose it. And I think that plays into a lot of the other things that A Song of Ice and Fire is wrestling with, right? Like that self-sacrifice and choosing to do it as opposed to be like, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice some other person. That counts. Rattleshirt's a free folk (laughs) anti-hero. Is he? Yup. <laughs> Rattleshirt for president. If I had to pick one, I would pick the Weeper. I would have gone Alfred Crow Killer. Come on now. He's terrifying. So John examines the other men that are in the room. Yes, there's a short, broad man who's eating a hen. Grease dripping down his face and into his snowy beard. He's got thick gold bands around his arms with runes carved into them and the heavy black chainmail of a ranger. And then there's also. Another dude. Looks pretty different. He's a tall and lean man. They must look like the number 10 when they stand next to each other in bronze scales with no ears. And he leans over a map and he's bald and muscled. Both the white bearded man and the bald one were warriors. That was played to John at a glance. These two are more dangerous than Rattleshirt by far. He wondered which was Mance Raider. I love that Mance has been built up as such a legend, so this all seems silly at first, because now that we know who Mance is, you're like, yeah, you got it a little, you weren't really on the money there, John. (laughs) But you get all these quotes, like even in Bran 1, the very first chapter, you get a quote about the deserter from the Night's Watch. Rob thought he was a wildling, his sword sworn to Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall, and made Bran's skin prickle to think of it. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told him. The wildlings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. They consorted with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night and drank blood from polished horns. And their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. You have this whole people that obviously the Stark kids, including John, because he's a Stark kid, shut up. Uh, they've been hearing all these things since they were little, even as far as stories tell from Old Nan. And even in John 3 in A Game of Thrones, him and Tyrion even discuss Mance Raider, and John thinks, you know, 
He wanted to fight Nance Raider's wildlings and ward the realm against the others, but it was better not to speak of the things you wanted. And then Catelyn and Ned even discussed Mance and the wildlings in Game of Thrones and Catelyn won. So Mance has very much been built up as this huge legend for not only the characters, but us as a reader. And John is very right to look around and try to decide who is the best warrior of them to kind of think of who Mance is. It just turns out that's not who Mance is. <laughs> yeah, as the final verse of the Dornishman's wife ends, the earless man notices John and he's disgusted that a crow is in their midst. And Drowshirt's like, Yeah, he's the bloody warg and he's the one that killed Oral. I've been telling everyone that. This guy sucks. <laughs> that's what. That's Rattleshirt right now. But Egret's like, no, this guy's the best. And defends John and says he slew Corin. And then everyone gets super offended because they all wanted to kill Corin. Yeah, absolutely. John is like, this is making my life so weird. He mistakes the bald man for Mance Raider and calls him your grace. And everyone was just like, that was a double faux pas. And then they start cackling and they're like, you thought that was Mance? And Mance, like, totally red velvet curtains, like, come into the room and they clear. And Mance is, like, in his tap dancing shoes and he, like, does a whole number with a princess twirl onto the screen. He, like, sits up with his lute and plays his own intro music. Right? His, like, cloak is all flowing. He's like, I'm Mance! Like, I'm just imagining it's a full production when it comes to Mance, man. He is always on all the time. That's true. He's always acting. Especially when he's able, I guess, later on and playing Rattleshirt. Uh, God. His dream role, I'm sure. But, yeah, as, as it says, John gets ridiculed for thinking that Stir is Mance. And this is the second time, if you'll recall, that John is actually wrong about what a king looks like. Because if you'll remember in A Game of Thrones, John thinks that, oh, that's what a king should look like when he sees Jaime Lannister. And then he's like, but that's not the king. He's very, very disappointed by what the king does look like. <laughs> and by that, we mean the way that he judges Robert Baratheon. And Mantis kind of on the other side of all of that. He doesn't look like a king, but unlike Robert, he cares gravely about his people. And, I mean, he's a pretty good fighter, too, as we'll see later on when he spars against Jon and, I don't know, does all the other things that Mance does. But is he the best among the wildlings? He's definitely not. And Mance shows how a good story or narrative, right, can be powerful for bringing people together and under a king like it's going to be for, I mean, like, Aegon, Aegon, as Varys points out, and that's exactly what they're crafting around him, because power, after all, isn't just brute strength. And then, of course, Mance is a great example of uh, finding kings where you don't expect them. Snow, Eliana. <laughs> snow, Chloe, snow! <laughs> but what does it matter for all men must die? The king beyond the wall said lightly, and I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. Tell me. Does my Lord of Bones speak truly? Did you slay my old friend, the Halfhand? I did, though it was his doing more than mine. The Shadow Tower will never again seem as fearsome, the king said with sadness in his voice. Corin was my enemy, but also my brother once. So, shall I thank you for killing him, Jon Snow? Or curse you? He gave Jon a mocking smile. The king beyond the wall looked nothing like a king, nor even much a wildling. He was of middling height, slender, sharp-faced, with shrewd brown eyes and long brown hair that had gone mostly to gray. 
There was no crown on his head, no gold rings on his arms, no jewels at his throat, not even a gleam of silver. He wore wool and leather, and his only garments of note was his ragged black wool cloak, its long tears patched with faded red silk. You ought to thank me for killing your enemy, John said finally, and curse me for killing your friend. Har! boomed the white-bearded man. Well answered! <laughs> that was good. That was a showstopper. Thank you. I was like, I gotta boom this. Fuck. And this is actually a very good answer from John. And of course it plays into all those different things that we've been talking about like forever, like throughout all of these things of contradictions manifesting in the series. John, he's now both enemy and friend. Horns are both safety and threat. Love, hate, ice, burn, you know all these things. Anyway. He was who he was. Jon Snow, bastard and oathbreaker, motherless, friendless, and damned. Again. <laughs> Head damned. And damned. That's pretty much what this is, right? It's all those opposites combating each other. But Mance suddenly begins to introduce John to the crew, which is when we're sitting here like, ah, he's so in. Uh, the mean bald dude is Steer, the Magnar of Then, like you mentioned. Magnar actually means lord in the old tongue. Fun trivia fact. Tormund is introduced as the chicken eater, but he interrupts and he's like, I deserve a real introduction. Highlights of this introduction include the tall talker, horn blower, breaker of ice, Tormund Thunderfist, Husband to Bears, the Mead King of Ruddy Hall, Speaker to Gods and Father of Hosts. Those all sound made up. He's fond of wargs, but not Starks, he says. We meet Dalla, the woman at the fire, who is carrying his child. Uh, he tells John to treat her like he would anything, and John does. And the beauty, of course, is her sister Val. The boy with her, the dark man, is Jarl, her recent pet. And I just love this exchange back and forth. I am no man's pet, said Jarl, dark and fierce. And Val's no man, white-bearded Tormund snorted. You ought to have noticed that by now, lad. I love one family. <laughs> it's them. <laughs> they are a very cute, sweet family. Also, Val is to Asha as Jarl is to Carl? I think yes. I mean, George got lazy and just like changed a letter. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, you Val's bitch. <laughs> That's what they're saying to him. He's like, fuck you. No, I'm not. And Carl's probably like, yeah, I am. <clears throat> Asha or, pegs me. Anyways. Maybe Jarl and Carl are, you know, while we're here, the same person. And that's why he's saying he's not Val's bitch, because he's Asha's bitch. I don't agree with you. <laughs> I made that up. Anyways. So there you have us, Jon Snow, said Mance Raider. The king beyond the wall in his court, such as it is. And now, some words from you, I think. Where did you come from? Jon tells Mance of his journey. He starts in Winterfell and works his way up to the Milkwater. He tells him how many they were and how they died. We were four in the half-hand. Corrin was worth twenty common men. The king beyond the wall smiled at that. Oh, real sad like brothers. the biggest sad hours literally like Corin and Mance I would take a book of those adventures they loved each other and they hated each other I they know, were I sworn enemies who loved each other I... fuck no really I wish I would fuck did you I did not expect to go into this reread of John's chapters and then suddenly just start being devastated about Corin and Mance's brotherhood 
I knew it was going to happen, but here we are anyway. I mean, I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't realize I was going to feel it so deeply. You know? Oh yeah, I'm dying. Yeah. There's a lot of feelings in all of the John chapters. This is what it's like being a teenager. And we're doing it all over again. Doing it live. <laughs> right here, everyone. Welcome. Uh, John prepares himself, though, for the lies that he must tell. He tells him he was being trained by Corrin. He uses the term seasoned. But they don't know why crows would come ranging up the scrolling path so far. I mean, it's pretty fucking obvious, but you know. <laughs> John mixes in a little bit of a half-truth. He's like, the villages were all deserted. But they're smarter than that, and Tormund just calls him out on it, and he's like, it was Craster. And Mansa's like, you motherfucker, I knew that. I was trying to see if he would lie. Now I won't know ever. And he ushers all of them out, and he's like, I need to talk to you one-on-one, macho to macho, without Dalla. Like, Dalla can stay. She's cool. Yeah, Dalla's not gonna blow up the spot. I like, I do like that exchange, though, between him and Tormund, and Tormund's like, even me? And he's like, especially you. You gotta go. It's kind of so like cute. they're the total hippie camp that doesn't know what they're doing. And Mance is like, we have enough strength. Like, we'll get over the wall. We'll figure it all out. We're, we're great. Everyone listen to this song on my loot. <laughs> but at the same time, maybe he's just trying to calm everyone down. Because, like, yeah, I'm sure yeah, everyone's, yeah. Pa- everyone's panicked. There's literally others. Yeah. But, yeah, I do love that this moment also happens because it's very lucky for John. Obviously, it's George R. R. Martin doing that thing where he thumbs the scales. But it's kind of clever because through this, we learn that Mance is cunning. This is that characterization through showing. But at the same time, we now don't know how John would have answered. And as you said, now Mance is never going to fucking know. Well, and that's the one interesting thing. We don't know how John's going to answer. However, we know how he forms his reaction after this, right? And John gets a little manipulative, a little political. He thinks on what will affect Mance when they're one-on-one talking. And this is kind of his moment to shine and to sing his own little bird song and see if uh, Mance looks through the Trixie Crow armor and will accept the (laughs) man within so Mance offers John food and hearth and mead. They begin to chat about their time in the watch, and Mance warns him, do not play the Trixie Crow with me. As you say, you're, you're Mance. <laughs> the king laughed. You're Mance! Why not? I promised you a tale before. Of how are you? Have you puzzled it out yet? <laughs> you're Mance. Why not? <laughs> The way he speaks is so ridiculous and frivolous. Like, he's just a dramatic bitch. How you puzzled it out, Snow. It's a riddle. He's like the Riddler. He's literally an Enigma, right? Like, that's him. I do also love that, like, Mance says he's called the Mance to some. (laughs) And at first you're just like, wow, uh, you just gave yourself a nickname. But I mean, Tormund obviously is doing that all the time. But anyway, he's saying the Mance. And we see actually that Ned is referred to as the Ned by some of the Northmen later on in the series and this shows that this is actually a quirk of their regional dialect and i think that shared bit of the shared bit of language between the free folk and the northerners just goes to show that they do share some of that culture as egret was trying to press into him that these two peoples or actually several different peoples right come together at once uh, aren't so different from the northerners and the westerosi in many ways in fact they used to be one back in the day yeah. There's also this line uh, where John asks him later to tell his tale where he thinks, 
The king was plainly a man who liked the sound of his own voice. And I think it's great that John catches on to this and he's listening and he's learning and he's trying to figure out who Mance is and trying to catch his numbers so he can manipulate him. And we're seeing kind of this big, like, ooh, all of a sudden the Stark kids are progressing in their arc a little. Like, Bran is finally almost at the Three-Eyed Raven. Sansa is learning to lie better. Uh, Arya is about to undergo her assassin training after she steals off to the east uh, later in this book. A Storm of Swords is really where these Stark kids come into their own, and John tells his first couple believable lies in this episode slash chapter. You did it, John. Mance quizzes John of the two times that he had seen him. When Mance was a brother of the Watch long, long ago, he had seen John and Rob as wee babs stockpiling snowballs when the Watch escorted Commander Corgyle to visit <laughs> Winterfell. And then I love that John's like, you promised not to tell on us. And he's like, and I didn't. And then John remembers pouring a bunch of snowballs no, on Tom. Tom. I know. Oh, oh Fat Tom. Uh, and then, and then the next time that he saw John at Winterfell was when King Robert came to Winterfell, and then Mance just like full on straight up Dungeons and Dragons bards his way <laughs> in there. So there you are, the night your father feasted Robert. I sat in the back of his hall on a bench with the other free riders, listening to Orland of Old Town play the high harp and sing of dead kings beneath the sea. I betook of your lord father's meat and mead. Had a look at Kingslayer and Imp and made passing note of Lord Eddard's children and the wolf pups that ran at their heels. Bail the board, said John, remembering the tale that Egret had told him in the Frostfangs the night he'd almost killed her. Would that I were. I will not deny that Bail's exploit inspired mine own. But I did not steal either of your sisters that I recall. Bail wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. There's a few things I want to call out in this uh, passage. He says, you know, I did not steal either of your sisters that I recall. However, he is sent to steal Arya in a Dawada, which of course is unsuccessful. It seems like so far for him, he doesn't make it out. But uh, Arya, quote unquote, makes it out. He, he does the yeah, mission. Right. He gets the mission. So half successful, half not. But I also find... The Orland of Old Town playing the high harp. Interesting because of what he sings. He sings of dead kings beneath the sea, which reminds me a lot of Patchface, who makes it to the wall, obviously, eventually here, and just makes me want to go, ah, Orland of Old Town. Was he singing, I know, I know, oh, 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 like, that's all I'm expecting. Like, what's a song about dead kings beneath the sea? Keeping the topic on songs. Bale wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. I think that is supposed to start coloring our reasoning for A Dance with Dragons Mance, who goes to Winterfell to Bale the Bard it then mm -hmm. as well. And we'll talk about that later. But that's him living a song. Instead of him playing the songs that better men have made, he's finally living a song. And then Mance talks about guest right and how once he had taken of Ned's meat and mead, he was safe by the laws of hospitality, which are as old as the first men and as sacred as a heart tree. This is foreshadowing. By the way, happy Storm of Swords! Oh, Yeah, they're gonna die. We just started and I'm like already sad. <laughs> so, finally, 
Mance is like, all right, are you for real? Why are you in my tent? Tell me your real story. And John is like, if you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So off Mance goes. And I do love this one passage. I'll read it. And I know you have some comments. The half hand was carved of old oak, but I am made of flesh. And I have a great fondness for the charms of women, which makes me no different than three quarters of the watch. I like this because, A, I mean, sure, maybe... 25% of that 25% of the watch maybe some of them are asexual right but a bunch of them I'm pretty sure are gay that's a very nice statistic it is and I think it's it kind of makes sense you know if you think about it like this is a good place to go to get out of like I don't know, societal pressure forcing you to marry a woman. Yeah, it's like this or the Citadel and that's it, homie. Yeah. Or you could just, like, piss off everyone else in your family and pull a Brendan Blackfish. Not everyone gets to be Alyssa Farman. That's true. Not everyone gets to just go sailing. Right. So, Mance tells John the reason he deserted was mostly his cloak and tells him its history. We hear the tale that we talked about in the last episodes, where Corin talks about a brother who would hunt shadow cats. And Mance was out hunting a shadow cat. The shadow cat tears his cloak to shreds, and his men took him to heal at a wildling healer's house. The old lady that was the healer had died, but her daughter knew her secrets and tended to Mance, patching him and his cloak up, and she patches his cloak up with scarlet silk, which is her greatest treasure from a shy. Uh, Noteworthy that it's red scarlety silk so of course it would be expensive dyes were expensive it's why you don't see a lot of color in the north because the north obviously doesn't have a lot of good trading as we've kind of mentioned very lightly in past episodes it's why clothing like blue colored clothing would likely be expensive as hell because of dye and this would be no different how would a wildly woman get a piece of beautiful scarlet silk from a shy it was uh it, it had like floated up there in like a boat or something was supposed to be how it got there and yeah i mean it's her greatest treasure yeah not only is it expensive because of the color and its beauty but i mean it's silk it's so rare it's a piece of a whole other world she'll never see yeah absolutely and it's just like egret says about her dress you know in the show the don't tear my silk dress john snow (laughs) snow that's right oh one of the cutest moments oh They had chemistry, probably (laughs) because they actually got married. Anyways. So when Mance finally returns to the Shadow Tower, he's equipped with a new black wool cloak. Clean, nicely cut, no rips. And Dennis Malister reminds him that men of the watch only wear black. He leaves the next morning to live where he cannot be punished for loving or not wearing pink on a Wednesday. (laughs) Yes, and I mean, it's because Dennis Malister was like, you gotta burn that, you know that, right? And I think one of the many reasons people like Mance, amongst many, one of the reasons that I love him is he leaves the watch, right? It seems like he's doing it for something so petty and trivial. And that's the thing, like, the watch thinks that this cloak, they don't even remember why Mance left, even though this is a huge deal. This is why he left, but it was so petty and trivial, no one even remembers it. That he left because his cloak wasn't black. Um, 
And then Mance's choice to desert me get an idea of who he really is. He's a romantic. There was meaning in that woman's gesture, in her giving her greatest treasure to repair his cloak. Yeah, the only way he could repay that was his sort of honor, right? In the way that Ned honored Brandon and Rickard, in the way that, you know, John found his honor in leaving Egret, in the way that Rob married Jane for Mance, his honor was leaving the watch for this woman who had given up basically the biggest, most important thing in her life for him. A stranger that did this. Exactly. And Mance just couldn't divorce that act of sacrifice that she makes, that of this treasure. And for his piece of cloth that they were going to replace anyway, like, he chooses a world where he gets to give things meaning and worth, not one where it's dictated for him, which I think is perfectly apt for a man who loves songs. He hasn't written them yet, but that's what it means. And with that, Mance has a people. He has a people that he plans to defend, which is pretty admirable. It almost gives an Edmure Mm -hmm. quality to it, right? Like, my people, they were afraid. And wouldn't you protect and defend those who follow your leadership? whether they were warriors or whether they were innocent and weak, it helps to build up the switch in A Dance with Dragons that we get in Mance's relationship with John. Both sort of their own man, a lone wolf on their own path, and Mance has come to respect John in his own way, agreeing to spring Arya from Winterfell. Regarding what you were saying about that leadership and Mance's honor, he has a horn that he thinks is the horn of Jorman, but he makes a choice to not blow it don't blow it, Mance. Because, <laughs> hey, it would be a bad idea, but he doesn't know why yet uh, in, in that sense. But he's not willing to blow the horn because he's like, we still are going to need this wall later. John took another swallow of mead. There was only one tale he might believe. You say you were at Winterfell the night my father feasted King Robert. I did say it, for I was. Then you saw us all, Prince Joffrey and Prince Tommen, Princess Marcella, my brothers Rob and Bran and Rickon, my sisters Arya and Sansa. You saw them walk the center aisle with every eye upon them and take their seats at the table just below the dais where the king and queen were seated. I remember. And did you see where I was seated, Mance? He leaned forward. Did you see where they put the bastard? I think we had best find you a new cloak, the king said, holding out his hand. Aw, man. What a great end to a chapter. He did it. Our boy did it. He pulled it off. John's lies worked. And you know, interestingly enough, John is getting a new cloak here. And a lot of cloak symbolism we've read and talked about in the book, especially if you look back to our episode with Lady Gwyn, where we talked about Sansa's cloak from Sandor and what it means. John is turning cloak, but he's also getting a new cloak, accepting a new ruler, accepting a new protector, as long as he does his part. But in this time, in this chapter, John has learned these folk are not all warriors and horrible and raiders and savages. There's a gentle nature to them, right? Like, dare I say it, they might be human. There's personification and humanization that just happen in this chapter, They aren't just wild savages that drink the blood of little kids like old Nan would tell him. And the black cloak represented duty, which, as we know, love is the death of duty. 
but it's duty to something that John could no longer believe in, something he was born into, much like Mance. And where we talked about Arthur and Corrin parallels, I wonder if the real Mance equals Rhaegar theory is the friends we made along the way, but also if it's not the friends we made along the way, the real Mance equals Rhaegar parallels are the red and black cloak that Mance has, and John refusing to let the color of a cloak color who he is, rejecting his own oh. red and black Targaryen cloak in the future, I imagine, is definitely going to come, and I wonder if Mance equals Rhaegar really is something more like that. That is what we're seeing those echoes in. It fits thematically for a reason. It fits thematically for us to think of it that way. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that you've tied cloaks as, you know, cloaking their identity and John's choice and the decision that he makes for himself because that's absolutely what it is symbolizing for Mance. Yeah, oh, absolutely. This is just the beginning of what Mance does for John as far as the effect on his character. We all see these characters that end up as mentors for these people and we know they're not going to be the Stark mentors forever. Serio obviously is dead uh, and eventually the kindly man, as much of a mentor as he can be, will not be Arya's mentor for long. Sansa won't stay with Littlefinger forever in the end. And thank God, thank fucking God, I hope he gets a fucking job. Fucking quit using my tax money, Littlefinger. And uh, John is very much learning from Mance right now. He's trying to understand, you know, what do I do? Who do I choose? What do I choose? And what am I? Am I a wolf of the pack? And later he'll be faced with a new addition, a new variable to that, which is, am I ahead of the dragon? Ultimately, I don't know if he chooses, like, being a Stark. I don't know what that, that that was exactly what they were communicating in the show. But he's gonna just be John. He's gonna choose being John somehow, some way, or not. I don't know something motherless friendless that was terrible and damned he certainly does choose damned okay (laughs) that is his fate unfortunately there were no good choices yeah absolutely not hey next week you guys we're gonna do john 2 on its own we're gonna keep up this one chapter by chapter uh reading just for a few chapters we actually have a guest coming on in a couple weeks we won't tell you now But if you tune into next week's episode, you're going to get a sneak preview of who it's going to be. We're very excited to have them on. We've worked with them a couple times before, and it's a good choice, I think, for one of my favorite chapters of all time. Oh, it's a fantastic chapter. Has to do with some caves, honestly. Oh, wow. A couple of caves. Mm, Some cavernous, moist. Mm. Anyways, so. Wow. Wow. As always. You guys can subscribe to us on social media. Follow us on Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. That's at Girls Gone Canon. Or send us a quick email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. If you want to send Eliana fan mail, which we seem to be getting a lot of, please feel free to do that. We've also been appreciating seeing some of this fan art. Hey, also, if you will all remember, Davos Fingers did a Song of Madness in March, and I get to plug people because this is my podcast. Check out, again, Draftergy, who made that great strong Bellwas illustration. They made one of Nimble Dick and Squishers. Yes! Nimble Dick Crab Forever at Draftergy on Twitter. And they also have an Instagram if you're living that Insta life. I follow them there. (laughs) Check it out. 
Yes. And if you aren't already, subscribe to us on any platform where you can download podcasts. Eliana is going to tell you where to find us. Yeah, you can find us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Acast, and of course on Podbean, where all of these things are actually hosted. And if you have a few dollars burning in the bottom of your wallet, we do have a Patreon. Reminder that every Friday we will release an episode for free, and we will also be releasing regular episodes on His Dark Materials coming up. Spend some money on us on Patreon. If you have it, $5 and up gets you special monthly patron episodes. They are fun. We just put out an episode on Dance of the Dragons. It was part four of the dance with some of the aftermath. <laughs> oh my God. And you guys would like it, so check it out. And uh, there won't be a part five. Will there? Will there? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe you should listen to find out. <laughs> but before before you figure that out, this month, of course, is July, and we will be doing our Patreon episode this month on... Well, there, there's a pretty big holiday here in this great old country that country and I... That Chloe and I call home. America. 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 <laughs> America. <laughs> and so we are going to do this month's episode of Patreon on. Chloe, do you want to announce and tell it to our I would love to announce, listeners? but I am busy popping bottles because I am celebrating Northern Independence, which is what our Patreon episode is, Eliana, for the month of July. So if you are interested in hearing that, sign up. $5 and up gets the episode. And if you got $1, throw it at us then, too. You get some special extra notes, some silly posts from us. Uh, we just want to interact and have fun with you guys, and we really appreciate your support. Thank you to all of our patrons who support us. That is patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. I have been Chloe. You know me. You know who I am. I don't have to say it. And I have been Eliana. You don't know who I am, <laughs> and I won't say it. Oh, uh, goodbye, you guys. Goodbye.